A survey that was done not too long ago of 7,000 resumes reveals many job seekers misrepresent themselves. Of the resumes with misleading information, here are the top offenses and the percentage of time they are misrepresented. False number of years in a job, 71%. Accomplishments exaggerated, 64%. Size of organization managed exaggerated, 60%. Partial degree indicated as full degree, 52%. Compensation exaggerated, 48%. Now you think with the advent of the internet and all that people would be a little smarter than this, but apparently not. Based upon the survey, I think it's within reason to say this, that most people present themselves as more successful than they really are. It's kind of like, you know, the fabled fisherman story. You know, that fish I caught was this, this, this big, right? You know, it's simply human nature. We're all self-interested. In the flesh, we do these kinds of things. Now, lest you think that Christians won't do these kinds of things, don't have this problem, I remind you of Exhibit A. During the Last Supper, the disciples are arguing with one another about who's going to be the first in the kingdom. Remember, they were asking Jesus about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says some really strange things about uh, the greatest will be the least, the first shall be last, that kind of thing. And then he does something really strange. He washes their feet. It so came against their, you know, natural proclivities that Peter said, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And later Jesus continued to kind of push in and, and got the job done. Serving and not worrying about your place, that is so unnatural, at least in the flesh. And Peter initially just didn't want to participate. We probably do ourselves a disservice to think that none of us have this issue or problem. I struggle with it. I think it's a common human thing. And I wonder then, given this understanding about human nature and who we are as people and how difficult it is sometimes to just walk in the spirit and forget yourself and, you know, remember that prayer, you know, more of him, less of me kind of thing when John the Baptist was praying that. I wonder how this gets in our way when we're trying to measure success and, and not just measuring our own lives, but even like success of a, of a church Is it possible that the kingdom values are so unnatural that we reject them at face value? And instead, we we want to restate them in a way that is just more palatable for people. Not only ourselves, but for others. More appealing. You know, now, we may not say this out loud, but... well, it might have an inner voice that says, you know, you know, that's serving stuff and being last. That's nice. But we all know that having lots of cash 
building some buildings and having gobs of people are the real markers of success. How does one measure success? In my estimation, there was one guy who may have been one of the greatest leaders in all of human history, where he led over two million of his countrymen into a land that promised them prosperity and safety. This happened some 3,200 years ago. Now, if anyone knew anything about leadership, it would be a guy like this who could have effectively mobilized people to get results. And that is exactly what Joshua did. Again, if anyone had the right to speak about success, it would be a person who accomplished one of the most Herculean tasks in the face of great opposition against the greatest superpowers of that day. Yet the power of God sustained them and, and utilized the leadership of Joshua to get them into the promised land. Now, if I were to read a book about leadership today, uh, you know, you probably hear things about how to mobilize people for a vision. And if it's about church, you know, how to raise money for the kingdom of God, how to select people in the right position. And it's not that those topics are inappropriate, but Joshua doesn't really talk in those terms when he defines success. Here's what Joshua says in his book that bears his name. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Again, I'm not decrying material success. I'm just saying that that may be different than what spiritual success, what Joshua's defining as success. I mean, these kind of words force us to turn upside down our common definitions of success. And basically, if you had to boil it all down, you're to know the will of God, and you're to do it. Know the will of God, and you're to do it. You cannot know the will of God if you are dismissing or denigrating the word of God. You must give the word its rightful place. Ponder it. Consider how it will be applied to your life. You're to know the will of God, and you're to do it. Any other definition that the church has in terms of success has to run along these rails, be consistent with these principles. As we look back on 2019, it's easy to see the things that are, that are dramatic and external and exciting and, and easily recognized. There's nothing wrong with those. But I'm also reminded of 1 Samuel 16, 7 that says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Not only does that mean that God knows the motives, but it reminds us that he's not fooled 
by just external parameters. And it's not that you have to completely discount external parameters, it's just that that doesn't tell the whole story. I mean, it's almost like saying, okay, you know, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to measure this over here. And God is saying, well, wait, wait, I want you measuring this over here. But we're so persistent that this is what I'm going to measure. This is what success is. And God's like, well, it's not that that's unimportant, but look at this over here. Since 2001, Good to Great by Jim Collins has become one of the most popular and influential leader's manuals in the business world. And Collins identified two specific character qualities shared by CEOs of good to great companies. The first was no surprise. These men and women possessed incredible professional will. They were driven. They were willing to endure just about anything to make their company a success. Really, no surprise. The second trait that these leaders had in common was not something that researchers expected to find. These driven leaders were also self-effacing and modest. They consistently pointed to the contribution of others. And they did not draw attention to themselves. Collins writes, the good to great leaders never wanted to become larger-than-life heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. So Collins is recognizing the importance of humility. He's marking it down as something that's necessary for a good leader. God recognizes humility. It gets his attention. In Isaiah 66, 2, we read these words from the Lord. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So whatever we say about success, humility, and obedience to God's word, these are integral. Jesus at the Last Supper, Joshua leading the people out of Israel, were driven by certain values that I think often get overlooked. You know, as I look upon this past year, uh, I see uh, some ministries flourishing, uh, better efficiency as a church, um, equipping aspects of our ministry that have been greatly improved and expanded, people coming to Christ, other things that from an external perspective are very positive and they're, they're worth mentioning. But if I were to be honest, none of those impacted me like a funeral that I did this year for somebody that was a part of our fellowship for a number of years. And I think his life kind of makes the point I'm trying to make because his life was not an easy one. He struggled in a marriage for understandable reasons. He never achieved a high status in his vocation. He was not a highly educated man. In fact, many would probably just discount him. They would look at his life and just pass over him. 
just didn't seem all that important. I don't think he ever bought a new car, certainly didn't live in a mansion. He was simple in just about every way that you could use that word. And yet he remained faithful in seeking to honor God, working hard, loving his wife. He was not perfect. He sinned like the rest of us. But I'd like to think that God saw him as a success as per the definition that Joshua provided to us. Family members told us of his ability to run, so much so that he just fell short of the Olympics, something he never told anybody. None of us knew that, and we knew him for decades. He was self-effacing. He had values that he was not going to stray from, and yet on the surface, many would overlook. So as I think of church, I think, you know what? Maybe the most successful churches in God's eyes are going to be just like that. For churches to remain consistent with the biblical definition of success, they have to have kind of an upside-down perspective. Look at the heart of things. Look at the, the quality of relationships. Look under the hood. Reminding ourselves of Joshua's definition reminding ourselves of the propensity that we have, just like the disciples, to make kingdom values our priorities and admit how difficult it is for us to keep our eyes focused on that and not just opt for a, a surface look. We have to strive to be value-driven, biblical values. So what I'd like to do today is uh, two things. We'll kind of set a target on, about our values, and these aren't new. In fact, you'll see these in our hallways listed. But we'll kind of take a look back and see how some of these were accomplished. And we do this as a way to just pause and thank God for what he's done. Say, God, I, yeah, you know what? Now I noticed that. You did do that. that. That was a good thing. Thank you for that. So we look under the hood and we evaluate these things that are close to God's heart. First is, first value is do the hard thing. Do the hard thing. We choose biblical obedience even when it means taking the harder or longer path. The apostle Paul wrote, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. So I have a different kind of reward than what the world has to offer, and I have to keep my eye upon that, and that keeps me focused upon the values that I should have. And I've witnessed this personally by those who continue to serve around here, even when it's not convenient. I mean, most of the lives of Americans are built around piling on activities, as many activities as possible, and they create this kind of hurried environment. And as a result, 
carefully thought out priorities take a back seat to the most immediate, emotionally satisfying ones. Now, it's not that it's bad to get involved in things that we really enjoy. I'm not saying that at all. It's that we do that at the sacrifice of biblical worldview, kingdom priorities. I mean, doing the hard thing happens when a spouse stays in a marriage through a barren season. It's hard. Believing that God can resurrect a relationship. In Luke, we read this, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's just a way of saying very vividly, very starkly, that if you're so concerned about the stuff here in this world, it's going to be really difficult for you to focus on kingdom values. Next is loosen your grip. We live an abundant life when we open up our hands, our calendars, and our budgets, expecting God to use them for his kingdom. One of the reasons that we continue to do VBS, Kingdom Come, Harvest, uh, or excuse me, Harvest Fest, and other events like this, that, that entail great contribution of time and effort, is because these are opportunities where many people really shine in their service. Volunteers give long hours and dedicate themselves to doing an excellent job to see kids embraced, loving the gospel, learning God's word, seeing adults and youth late at night setting up sets on the stage after the events are over, tearing them down late into the night. It demonstrates that there are people who believe that their hands and their calendars are making an impact for the kingdom of God. This really is a matter of discipleship. It's about people living out a mission to find their real life in giving and giving and serving. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It reminds me of a conversation I had recently with someone on our safety team. The exact words he said to me were these. I'd stand in front of a bullet for you. I was like, what? Now, I know several people who'd like to put a bullet in me, but to have someone say, I will stand in front of a bullet for you, I was taken back by that. And I really, he was dead serious. Give up your life. For my sake, find it. For the Lord's sake. When we realize our life is not our own, you know what happens? Big commitments, great sacrifices are welcome opportunities to expand the kingdom of God. In fact, I remember one person saying to me that they didn't want me to use the word sacrifice when talking about money or service. Apparently, anything beyond comfortable was not welcome. But an abundant life is about letting go of things to invest in an eternal kingdom. 
Next, overcome distractions. We unite as a diverse community to overcome differences through a gospel focus and purpose. A racially diverse, politically varied, denominationally mixed, generationally assorted body demonstrates that the gospel can unite us in a way that no other movement, no other entity, no other cause can. Now, we as a body are much further along than we were 20 years ago. And with God's help, we'll continue to focus upon the gospel and we'll continue to overcome the secondary issues that normally divide a body. I'm thankful for a church body that has wide arms and loving hearts to welcome anyone with grace and love in our midst. The more I talk to other people in other denominations where they have these very, you know, I think kind of strict lifestyle rules you have to abide by to be a part of them. I'm thinking, wow, is that what we're united on? Because to me, the beauty about the church is that we can disagree about a lot of things, secondary things, but the gospel unites us. And we don't get hung up on a lot of these other things. So I love the warmth and the grace that this body displays, and that has come from practice. I hear it many times from from visitors. So I, I commend you for uniting as a diverse community. Now, we always have room to grow, right? But I want us to just pause and say, Lord, you have done this. Thank you for your work in helping us become more of a diverse community than we were and helping us grow and expand in that area as well and being united in the gospel. Uh, I think of my pastor's group where we have pastors from different denominations, races coming together, enjoying a community. And really, every time you minister on a team, whether it's a a safety team or life groups, a a children's Sunday school, it's an opportunity for unity to be expressed as people labor together in the advancement of the kingdom, whatever it is. Next is know your neighbor. We build intentional relationships, meeting physical and spiritual needs, both next door and around the globe. We see this where we meet needs, not only here, but in Guatemala or in, in Jordan. But the common thread is relationship. Every missionary that we support is connected to CCC in meaningful relationship. They've either come from this church body or we've already had a close relationship with them. Uh, we have taken many trips to Guatemala and what drives us is building relationships with the staff and the kids at the children's center that we call Bethlehem. Even our luncheons that we have here and the launch class where you meet staff and elders at CCC are an attempt to get to know people that are new and make sure they know they're not a number. That it's not like trying to herd cattle and just move them on to the next stage. No, it's about relationships. And obviously, our life groups are where we can grow deeper and minister with one another outside these walls. Knowing your neighbor isn't just a saying, it's a way of life for us. It's part of our DNA. 
Next, get out of the boat. We pray often, we take bold steps of faith, trusting that God will do what only he can do. You know, we can grow in every area, but perhaps this is the area for me personally, as I look at our church, I'd like to see us grow the most. Taking bold steps of faith, asking God to do really big things that there would be no way that we could do in our own power. This year's Advent was a bold step as we asked God to provide the largest amount we've ever asked for in buying an ultrasound machine for Syrian refugees in Jordan. And God came through in a big way and you responded to his promptings by giving generously. We're so thankful for this. In addition, a couple years ago, we talked about paying down our mortgage and had a certain goal that by next, I think it's March, we would try to reach. We've already reached that goal. And again, you have been extremely generous. So I look at these values. I see these ways in which God has demonstrated these. And I just want to say thank you, Lord. And I want to keep pressing ahead and asking God to do even more as we think of 2020 and strive to, what, equip and empower people in our God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. First Chronicles says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among his people. As you reflect back on 2019, I hope you're encouraged about what God has done in your life, about what God has done in this church. And I think it's appropriate for us to share even in public proclamation as it gives us a chance to thank God along with you. So why don't we do just that? Pause. Consider how God has worked in our own life. Consider how God has worked through his church. And I, I would ask that you just, uh, you could stand, or if you want to stay seated, that's fine too. And let us share in what you're giving God thanks for. That sound good? What you'd like. So who'd like to go first? 